available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 19th of April 2023. Coming up in the next 90 minutes, Whitefriars, one of Coventry's most intriguing medieval survivors. We're talking tea and coffee, the 1960s icon that was Mary Quant, and happy memories of holidays past. All that, plus a poem by Rudyard Kipling, and all our usual features, postbag, sport, and news from the Resource Centre. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. More than 100 equal pay claims have been lodged against Coventry City Council with a potential cost of millions. City Councils were briefed last week that around 147 claims by members of trade union GMB have been made against the authority. A GMB source at Coventry Council source confirmed to the local democracy reporting service that the number is in the hundreds. Members at the briefing were also told the claims could cost the council tens of millions of pounds, with figures of between 30 and 50 million pounds given. It could lead to the council having to borrow large amounts of money or make cuts to services, councils were told. In England and Wales, back pay can be awarded to a maximum of six years for employees who succeed in making equal pay claims. In December uh, 2022, trade union GMB raised a formal dispute with the council over how the authority had historically valued and paid certain rules. Certain roles, I beg your pardon. In a statement on their website, they said anyone who's worked for the council or for a local authority school in the last six months at grade three, four or five levels could be owed money. Asked a comment, GMB organiser Michelle McCrossan said, Our members aren't going to accept business as usual when it comes to valuing the work of women at Coventry City Council. We believe that there are significant issues with how the council has restructured the payment of certain key roles. And as part of this dispute, GMB members have lodged claims to tackle it head on. Coventry City Council is fast becoming known as a pay discrimination hotspot, with the work of roles predominantly done by women consistently undervalued by council top brass. GMB union is crystal clear. Our members will not accept pay discrimination. A spokesperson for Coventry City Council said... It is already in the public domain that the GMB union has raised equal pay concerns with us at the end of last year. We're in in ongoing dialogue with representatives in an attempt to resolve the issues they've raised. There are established processes when a union dispute starts and these systems are well underway. Coventry City Council employs around 4,500 staff and values them all equally. We are acutely aware of the duties around equal pay and people will remember this was a major issue for us as we attempted to resolve the long-running dispute with bin lorry drivers last year. Coventrians have been encouraged to know their rights after the City Council's housing enforcement team reported a recent rise in complaints regarding rent increases. 
In one case, a landlord attempted to increase the rent by 100%, although most cases have seen smaller rises attempted. A landlord is only allowed to increase rent once a year by issuing a Section 13 notice or giving an extended fixed-term contract, which in both cases tenants can refuse. The council is advising people not to pay increased rent if they have not been given the appropriate paperwork. They should also contact the council as soon as a rent increase is suggested. In order legally to evict someone, a landlord must serve a valid notice to the tenant and then, if needed, obtain a possession order from the court. Tenancies do not automatically finish at the end of a fixed term. The Council's Property Licensing and Housing Enforcement Manager, Andrew Chowns, said, People faced with the threat of eviction and homelessness is a daunting prospect. We know the impact this has on families. In some cases, landlords are giving tenants the ultimatum to pay the increased rent or be evicted. This is wrong. We want to support tenants as much as possible. Wasps RFC are reportedly seeking funding for a new 24,000 capacity stadium development as part of an ambitious rebuilding plan following the club's financial collapse last autumn. Wasps, who had played their home games at the Coventry Building Society Arena until they fell into administration in October, are also targeting a projected return to the top flight for the 2025-26 season. In recent documents, the club allegedly outlines its vision for a new permanent home in the M40 corridor to be known as Wasps Nest Stadium. The proposed complex, which the paper says has a 27-28 season target, would also include a hotel, conference facilities and community leisure opportunities. The report claims work could potentially start in 2025, subject to planning and other permissions. Wasps fell into administration in October when 167 players and staff were made redundant. The club has, however, been cleared to resume playing in the Championship from next season. It thought the club's existing training ground in Henley and Arden would potentially satisfy the Rugby Football Union's criteria to stage competitive league matches in England's English rugby's second tier. The move could end months of speculation over the club's next steps with Damson Park, home to non-league football club Solihull Moors, and Six Ways Stadium, the proposed home of Six Ways Rugby, the newly rebranded Worcester Warriors, both having been mooted as potential destinations. A number of former Wasps players, however, remain committed to resurrecting the club and re-establishing it as a viable premiership concern. Under the strapline, stung but resilient, a slight departure from its cult current motto of stung but in recovery the club's stated vision is to be an inspirational sports business promotion back to the premiership in 2025 is reportedly seen as a key element of the business plan financially reportedly the aim is for rugby revenues to account for less than 50 percent of wasps total revenues by 2028 with the objective of brand leveraged revenues from other stadium activities bringing in an estimated £7 million per year from 2077 onwards.
It's claimed the club is looking to appoint a forward-thinking board of directors containing several prominent and successful business leaders. The board's lineup will be formally announced soon with the task of ensuring that forecasted revenues dictate spending on the playing side of the business. A WASP spokesperson said, the privileged and leaked document referred to seeks to meet the objectives of future sustainable ownership. By definition, that requires ownership of a ground to meet the requirements of brand leverage revenues. Questions have been raised about the Coventry Central Baths and the Elephant Building after it was revealed it had cost more than £900,000 to maintain the complex over the past three years. A Freedom of Information request showed £912,955 has been spent by the City Council on the maintenance, security and utilities at the Coventry Sports and Leisure Centre on Fairfax Street from when it closed in February 2020 to January 2023. Of this, 354000 was spent on utilities, while maintenance cost taxpayers 95000 and 464000 has been spent on security over the last three years. In 2019, the City Council's Cabinet agreed to decommission and close Coventry Sports and Leisure Centre once the wave was complete and open, and to dispose of the site. The Council entered into an exclusivity agreement with Rainier Developments Limited in February 2020, and the swimming baths closed later that month. This exclusivity agreement meant Rainier had to bring forward a delivery strategy for an acceptable development. Councillor Boyle said, This building is Grade 2 listed and we have a legal obligation to maintain it. If we don't, we would potentially open a challenge from historic England. We've always wanted to find an alternative use for the site, but we've got to caveat that it was closed and decommissioned as it wasn't in a great state. The alternative would be to seek demolition, which is something we have never done, would cost a lot more because of the listing, and would not necessarily happen. Councillor Boyle said he hoped an announcement on the future of the building could be made within the next few weeks, adding if it was not for the Covid pandemic, the situation would have progressed quicker. Stephen Smith, who was the Conservative Party candidate for Sherborne in this year's local elections and submitted the Freedom of Information request, said, While the building is Grade 2 listed, redevelopments like Battersea Power Station have shown how new life can be breathed into historic buildings while maintaining their architectural integrity. To me, this Labour Council has no vision and I believe we should be talking to as many partners as possible to make the best use of this prime city centre space instead of it remaining a burden on the Coventry taxpayer. In August 2020, the Coventry Citizens Party started a petition about transforming the Elephant Building into an arts and exhibition centre. Its founder, Ian Rogers, said he was hardly surprised to see more excuses about why nothing had happened to the building 
and added that sadly neither Labour nor the Conservatives had any vision for it. A patient who was deemed medically, medically fit for discharge spent more than a year at Coventry Hospital, it's been revealed. The research found that several NHS trusts were delaying discharging patients from the ward, even though they were well enough to leave. Labour said the figures showed a shocking waste of a year of someone's lives and of taxpayers' money. Long stays in hospital for patients ready to be discharged increase the risk of mobility loss, psychological harm and hospital infections, often increasing the need for long-term care, research shows. Last year, a patient at UHCW NHS Trust was discharged 491 days after they were considered fit to leave. The hospital said there were legal complications that prevented them from discharging this patient. A spokesman for the Trust said this was a highly complex case where legal complications prevented an earlier discharge. This was an unusually long length of stay. On average, patients are with us for seven to eight days and not something we expect to see again. There were several other NHS Trusts where patients were kept in hospital beds despite being medically fit. A patient at Caldervale and Huddersfield NHS Foundation Trust was released after 440 days in a hospital bed and a mental health patient in Greater Manchester faced a delay of 540 days. Coventry's newest political party is confident it can win its first seat on the City Council after a close by-election last year. The Coventry Citizens Party which formed four years ago to challenge the city's two-party system, is fielding 14 candidates in local elections this May. Its main target is Labour-held seat in Binley and Woolenhall, where the party's candidate, Paul Cowley, was 19 votes from second place in July's by-election. Mr Cowley increased his vote share from 19% to 29%, and overall was less than 200 votes away from winning. But he and Conservative candidate Amarjit Singh Kangora, who got 30% of the vote in the by-election, were not standing against an incumbent, as they will be in May. Party leader Cameron Baxton said, We are confident winning our first seat in Bindi and Woolenhall with community champion Paul Cowley who narrowly missed out on winning the seat last year. Over the past three years, Paul has been supporting local food banks and community groups, as well as running a community shop in Willenhall. We are really competitive this time. We can take the seat. Mr Baxter claimed the Coventry Citizens Party is the only party totally dedicated to Coventry and not linked to a national agenda as other parties can be. Asked what is the most important issue in Coventry, he said, the cost of living crisis. People are really suffering, there is no doubt about that. It was very disappointing to see the Labour Council increase council tax by the maximum amount of 4.9%. We have to do everything we can as a council to find funds for public services before looking at council tax. His party wants to cut costs at the council in other ways, such as reducing the number of city councillors to 36 and having all-out elections every four years. 
Mr Baxter said, having elections where a third of the council is elected every year over a period of three years with a break on the fourth year increases voter fatigue and leads to lower media interest. The group are critical of six-figure salaries for dozens of senior roles at the authority and would review executive salaries above 100,000. Asked whether the council needs to pay people highly to attract talent, Mr Baxter accepted that chief executives get substantial fees in the sector. But it's borderline ridiculous at this point when you're talking about £200,000. The party is also calling for Coventry's new train station to go into Longford rather than Folesill as is being planned by Transport for West Midlands. It also wants the station to be near the M6 and part of an express interchange for buses and coaches in Exhall, which they believe would be much more effective than alternative plans. A man has appeared in court following a fatal stabbing in Coventry. Penquist's son, 23, appeared at Birmingham Crown Court last Wednesday, charged with murder and attempted murder, after a 22-year-old man was stabbed to death on Upper Wells Street. Police were called to the busy road in the early hours of Thursday, April the 6th, and found Xu Zhu critically injured, who died a short time later. A second man, aged in his 20s, suffered a shoulder and hand injury, which are not believed to be life-threatening. Son from Coventry did not enter a plea and was remanded into custody. A further hearing will be held on Tuesday, May the 9th at Warwick Crown Court. Detective Inspector Dave Sanders from Coventry Police previously said, We're not looking for anyone else in connection with the attack, but our investigations continue. Concerns have been raised after huge piles of rubbish were dumped near homes in Coventry. Waste can be seen strewn on a number of residential streets in the city. Numerous black bags can be seen piled high on Ellicombe Road. A discarded mattress, shopping trolley and upside-down table are among the rubbish fly-tipped on Deedmore Road, Hillmorton Road and Ashhorn Close. Residents are said to be fed up with fly-tipping in Woodend and Henley Green. Councillor Ed Ruane said many have complained that the stench wafts into their flats when they open their windows and that the large piles of waste have attracted rats. Councillor Pat <coughs> Seaman called on citizen housing to conduct regular inspections of parts of the city that are frequently hit by fly tipping. Citizen housing confirmed that the waste was removed last Wednesday. Councillor Seaman said Citizen housing need to ensure that our open green spaces are regularly inspected and kept clean. All residents deserve to live in a clean environment and are fed up with the impact fly-tipping has on their neighbourhoods. Steve Kirk, Director of Maintenance at Citizen Housing said, We were first alerted to the fly-tipping at Ellicombe Road Flats. Deedmore Road, Hillmorton Road and Ashhorn Close on Tuesday last week. We always try to act as quickly as possible to remove any fly tipping from estates and neighbourhoods and our teams are out clearing the fly tipping from these locations on the next day, Wednesday. Our housing officers and estates team regularly check for fly tipping but it is unfortunately 
an ongoing issue citywide. Working together with Coventry City Council, we continue to strive to drive down the instances of fly-tipping through the identification of the perpetrators and appropriate enforcement action. Popular Coventry music producer Pete Waterman is calling for a much-loved railway attraction to be saved. The Stoke Heath pop icon used to work for British Railways and has a lifelong love of trains. Now he's called for the Seven Valley Railway to be saved. It's an award-winning heritage railway where guests can experience the golden age of travel in the heart of England. The attraction is appealing desperately for help to raise funds to keep running and says its electricity and coal bills have dramatically increased to £500,000 a year. The Seven Valley Railway runs trains between Bridgenorth and Kidderminster and has seen the number of visitors drop by a third over the past year. Pete, a former Whitley Abbey pupil, says the railway is too precious to lose. He said, Heritage railways are great for the community. The crisis they are in now is not just the money, it's the volunteers. Since COVID-19, we've lost a serious amount of volunteers, and you can't run without volunteers. The appeal is to get out there and support them, because if you don't, you could lose them. We can't lose the valley, it's too precious. Pete Waterman got into pop music after a career in railways as a young man. He was a steam locomotive fireman in the West Midlands. Of his time at British Railways, he once said, I loved every minute of it. The squalor was unreal, but the camaraderie was phenomenal. In order to cut costs, the bosses of the Seven Valley Railway announced redundancies and the running of temporarily reduced services in February. However, this is not the first time the company have faced financial pressures. In December 2021, it was awarded nearly £1 million of government funding due to losses from the COVID pandemic. Managing Director of Seven Valley Railway, Jonathan Dunster, said... We've normally held a cash reserve of being 1.2 million and 1.5 million, which for an organisation like this with a lot of old infrastructure to maintain is really quite important. Now, to be in a position where we almost have no resilience is quite concerning for the long-term future. We need to rebuild that back up, he added. A woman has appeared in court after Just Stop Oil protesters targeted Coventry's Dippy exhibition. Victoria Linzel, aged 67, and Daniel Kaur, Nor, aged 21, were charged with having an article with intent to destroy or damage property. It follows the incident at the Herbert Art Gallery, which was caught on camera and showed security staff tackling two people who climbed into the exhibit and tried to gain access to the Diplodocus cast, dubbed Britain's famous favourite dinosaur. West Midlands police officers were called and the two were arrested. Officers also seized large bags of dry paint from the scene. Linzel, who is from School Hill, Flecknow in Warwickshire, was released on conditional bail and will appear at Warwick Crown Court on Tuesday, May the 9th. She has been ordered not to enter the museum or carry coloured paint or powder with the purpose of destroying property. Nor, who is from Green Street, Oxford, did not appear at the Magistrates Court yesterday. His first appearance at the Little Park Street-based court is scheduled for Wednesday, May the 10th. 
A 31-acre plot of land, which will be used for the first phase of a new 2,400-home community in Coventry, has been sold to 10-year developer Countryside Partnerships. The area on Pickford Green Lane has been allocated for development in the Coventry Local Plan, with 250 new homes set to be built there. The development will form the first part of a wider 353-acre site at Eastern Green, for which outline planning permission was secured in 2021. The wider scheme, known as Pickford Gate, will see 25% of the 2,400 homes being affordable. There will also be 37 acres of land dedicated to helping to grow employment, a new primary school, district and local community centres, a transport hub and open spaces and play facilities. Countryside Partnerships is looking to open show homes on the site towards the end of the year. Packs of jumbo toilet roll have been put up for auction to help cover the Coventry City of Cultures Trust debts. Six packs of loo paper are among the items from the former real store run by the Trust that are up for grabs by the public. The entire contents of the digital art gallery, which was housed in the Coventry Telegraph's building's old print room, are being sold off by administrators. The BPI auction website has almost 400 lots of items from the real store, which the public can bid on until this Thursday. These include a four-piece grey sofa, an electric fly-killer machine, a lollipop lady sign, 80 paint tester pots, a defibrillator and two signed rugby shirts. Laptops, iPads and computer monitors are up for grabs along with the microwaves, an undercounter dishwasher and freezer and fridges. Merchandise for the real store and the City of Culture Year, including Frida Kahlo notebooks and boxes of branded Scalectric Jaguar cars, are on sale. Some items are still going for just £5. Only one of the 15 high projectors has a bid listed, despite the auction being open since March the 21st. The packs of loo roll, sold in groups of eight or nine, have attracted more interest, with one lot going for £22 at the time of writing. The real store had been billed as the UK's first permanent digital art gallery, but closed after 10 months due to the Trust's collapse. The gallery's long-term future and the future of other legacy programmes planned by the Trust are now in doubt. Creditors of the Trust include Coventry City Council, which is owed £1.6 million, including money from a £1 million emergency loan given in October 2022. Both the National Audit Office and the Charity Commission have launched probes into the Trust's finances and administrators are conducting their own investigations. One of Coventry Cathedral's iconic statues has been vandalised. Police have released a CCTV image of a man they want to speak to after it was noticed that the statue had been damaged. It's believed that the statue, St Michael's victory over the devil, was stained deliberately. Coventry police said they believed the man pictured was involved in the damage. The 1958 bronze sculpture symbolises the triumph of good over evil. 
It's one of the last created by sculptor Jacob Epstein before his death in 1959. A spokesman for Coventry Police said, We want to speak to this man after the statue outside Coventry Cathedral has been damaged. We were yesterday alerted to the Michael's victory over the devil having been stained deliberately. We released an image of the man we suspect of being involved. An independent charity organisation in Coventry has launched a GoFundMe appeal to raise funds to help provide housing for people with addiction issues. The Dynamo Project, Dynamo standing for Dedicate Yourself Now and Miracles Occur, relies on donations and revenue from its coffee shop. Founded by Kieran O'Toole, the project is in the process of getting assistance from Coventry City Council for housing residents. However, the Hartford Street-based charity says this is taking a long time, and in the meantime, it is having to cover the cost. The charity says supporters are helping to transform lives. It has so far raised £1,385 of its £10,000 goal. Writing on the GoFundMe page, Kieran said, The project to date has been fully self-funded to get us to where we are today. But this will not be sustainable for the long term. To make a difference in our city needs support for the project that is dedicated to helping addicts get clean and learn the skills and tools to remain abstinent, re-entering society ready to succeed. If you can't do this, then please come into the coffee shop and support us that way, as all proceeds go back into the project. He said, we are so blessed to see the transformation in the lads who come in broken, and then we have the privilege to watch the light come back in their eyes. We get to watch family relationships heal, children get their parents back, and courage and hope increase. Many of those who have donated have left supported comments praising the work the project does. Douglas Walton said, This is an outstanding service provided in our city by a top team. So much respect for the work you're all doing. A group of singers from Coventry earned a standing ovation on Britain's Got Talent as they stormed through to the next stage. The Big Sing Choir wowed judges on last Saturday's show and got four yeses amid rapturous applause from the audience. The choir, which was formed in 2011, is made up of Coventry singers, along with various other choirs from across Warwickshire, Kent and Essex. It found itself performing in front of Simon Cowell, Alicia Dixon, Amanda Holden and Bruno Tonioli, and they loved it. In total, the choir has more than 500 members, and for the audition, many were hidden in the audience from the balcony to the royal boxes at London Palladium, ready to pop up at certain points in the song. Many surprised looks arose on the judges' faces when choir members suddenly jumped up and started singing Emily Sando's song, Brighter Days. The show, watched every year by millions, saw the crowd jump to their feet at the end of the performance along with the judges. Anton Deck seemed blown away at the side of the stage. Trying to speak amid loud applause, Simon Cowell said, Wow, we weren't expecting that. Alicia Dixon chipped in to say, Oh, how do we sum this up? I just felt so joyful throughout the whole thing. Outstanding.
Simon told the choir, when you were talking, you said, oh yeah, it's a community choir. You know, it's about bringing people together. And I'm like, it's not that big, is it? And then you got me. Then it was time for the verdict. Bruno said, oh, it's a definite yes. Yes, yes, yes. Alicia said, it's a big yes from me, guys. It's a yes from me, said Amanda. That just left the big man himself. After a dramatic pause that saw the faces in the choir look on anxiously, Simon told me, told them, you've got four yeses. Members of the choir threw their arms in the air at the news. And speaking afterwards, director of the big sing, Gemma Francis, said, when we had this opportunity to sing on one of the UK's largest shows, we just had to take it. Our choir is all about ordinary people achieving amazing things together. And finally... The term cat burglar lived up to its name. A cat targeted a pet shop in Coventry and rummaged through a bag of dog food before leaving behind a nasty surprise. Staff at Purdy's Pet Shop in Holbrooks were shocked to find the store in a right mess. They first thought rats had scurried around the store after spotting a bag of dog food ripped open with teeth marks. But little did they know, a feline friend had paid them a visit. After analysing CCTV footage, the staff members were shocked to find that a cat had sneaked into the store. In the clip, the cat was seen breaking open a bag of dog food and munching happily in the late hours of the night. The cat even left them a rather unpleasant present in a corner before taking an hour-long nap. The nonchalant cat was then seen entering the toilet and disappeared. Upon inspecting the premises, staff members realised the cat had managed to get into the store through the toilet window. Store manager Tracy Nelpen said it was a real surprise a cat had managed to break into the pet shop. Outlook News Thanks very much to Elaine uh, for helping with the news, as she does every week. Uh, and this week it's uh, my turn to join her in that. Um, moving on now, we're, we're going to look at the lighting up times uh, for this week. Sunrise is at 6.02am and sunset is at 8.11. Getting a bit later at night at long last. Right, uh, next we come to our regular look at what's happening at the Resource Centre. Here's you. Hello, everybody. Well, I hope you all had a very pleasant break over Easter. It's good to be back with you now. Uh, well, sort of good. I've got to go out this afternoon, so I'm pre-recording this. So, a fair amount to tell you. We're currently in the recruitment process for two new members of staff to help us deliver on the grant we've received from the City Council and the Integrated Care Board. I'll let you know about who we appoint as soon as I can. It's all very exciting. I've had an email from British Blind Sport, well, you can guess what they do, who are based in Leamington. They're looking to hold a have-a-go day in Coventry in June, and it'll either be the 10th or the 17th of June, both Saturdays, I think. Um, it's an essential taster fest, it's essentially a taster festival where you can get to try different sports or exercise activities designed for people with visual impairments. 
Now, examples might be goalball or blind cricket. But recognising that many people might feel they're just a little superannuated for the really physical events, they're hoping to offer things like seated yoga and other gentler exercises. Of course, we offer yoga here at the centre, which is popular, and we hope very soon to add another session in the week. So if you're interested in taking part in the day, please let Heather know. Uh, and if there's an exercise activity or sport that you'd like to try, please do let me know as soon as possible and I'll pass the message on. Now, as you will know, Joe's mum, Katie, died a few weeks ago and her funeral is on Monday afternoon, this coming Monday, at 3.45pm. So that the staff can go to support Joe and to say our own very fond uh, goodbye to Katie, the centre will close at 3pm sharp on Monday. It won't affect any groups which will run as normal. We have a new, well, newer minibus which we have acquired from the Enterprise Club. Uh, this is a Renault Master, a bit bigger than our current one, but with all the same features including lower steps and a wheelchair lift. It, it came yesterday and we're just now sorting out all the paperwork and it will go and get all the it get budged up next week, so all the logos and what have you on it. So I hope it will be in service by the time you get next week's outlook through your letterbox. Our plan is then to sell the Ford as soon as possible and then using that money find a replacement for the old Renault. But I'll keep you posted on all of those developments. Now, coming up on May Day is the Earlsdon Festival. June the Shop is working hard on preparing stock as we go large, largest of the year, in the car park on that day. Uh, the Allotment Club will also be raising money with their hugely popular plant stall. It's going to be a blast, so if you can come, please do. There's lots of other stuff uh, going on in Earlson on that day as well. The whole of the high street will be stuffed with stalls and people, um, so it's definitely a good day out. And we've got lots of people signed up already for our coronation tea on May the 5th. It's going to be last call fairly soon. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. If the weather is lovely, we'll be in the garden. If it isn't, we'll be in the Boston Lodge lounge. Now, talking of the garden, on the 18th of May, we'll be welcoming a group from the Coventry Building Society who will be working with our very own Jeff Gort to replace and paint all the handrails. We've wanted to do the job for ages. Some of them there are getting a bit rotten. So we're really happy to have got the date in the diary. The new rails will be shaped and rather nicer to hold, and this time they'll be bright yellow. So uh, that's it for now. If you want anything, you know the number to call 024 and we'll do our very best to help. I'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hugh. Informative as usual. And next, as usual, it's Sarah with your sports report for this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, lovely listeners. Well, you're lovely and you're listening, so therefore you're a lovely listener. Anyway, it's Silly Sarah again with this week's sport. And as usual, I'll try, I'll start off with the balls. <clears throat> Coventry City were away to Queen's Park Rangers. Now, actually, we had beaten them when they came to us at the CBS Arena. So we had the chance to do the bounce. 
i.e. win both home and away for only the second time this season. And it all looked quite good because after 10 minutes, Jokeres, goal! Then a really lovely move in about the 84th minute when Jokeres passed to Tyler Walker who passed to Gustavo Hamer, City, goal! And then, not to be left out of it too much, upsets Jokeres in about the 85th minute, goal! 3-0 to City. What a difference to the match at home against Stoke. Now, this not only vastly improved our goal difference, but it also, at the end of the match, left us in sixth place. And, of course, it's the top places three to six get to play in the playoffs with a chance of promotion to the hallowed turf of the Premier League. However, I need to quickly add that that didn't last long because Blackburn had a late evening match and by the end of that, i.e. by about 10, 10 o'clock, we were seventh. Blackburn drew with Hull City. Anyway, we've got a midweek match, which I realise will be by the time most of you listen to this, but it's on Wednesday. And we are away to Blackburn. You couldn't have written it, could you? Anyway, staying in the championship but changing shape of ball to the ovoid ball, Coventry Rugby Club were away to Richmond. And it was for Coventry of late. It was quite a tight match. And they only won 18 points to 22. However, most importantly, that has secured their third place in the championship which is the highest they have ever been in the championship. Right, returning to the round ball. I'm afraid Leamington at home lost to Chorley. They lost one goal to two through Chorley's almost last kick of the match. Oh, sickening. I'm afraid this does absolutely nothing for Leamington's survival chances and I fear they are looking at the drop to the next division down. Hey-ho, better things. At the top of the lower-ranked Southern Premier, I like it when the Southern Premier is ranked lower than the Northern Premier, Nuneaton drew 2-2 away to Ilkeston. But that one point means that they are absolutely assured of their place in their playoffs. There's a lot of playoffs here. Meanwhile, previously firmly rooted to the bottom of the league, Stratford, drumroll, won 1-0 against Colville, who are number one in their league, the absolute top. Anyway, Stratford have now assured their safety. They can't be caught and won't be relegated. So well done, ye bears. Pass on some of your, well, not good fortune, but 
resumed sort of skill to Leamington. Please. Now, I'm not going to cover the very small uh, Midlands counties this week because I want to spend more time talking about gymnastics. Last week and over the weekend, it was the European Gymnastics Championships. Drum roll. Great Britain won the bronze medal in the men's, but bigger drum roll, we won the gold in the women's team overall gymnastics event. What a change from the years when I was growing up. I mean, I've always been pretty bonkers for gymnastics. And my sort of key years of interest were probably 75 to about 79. The time of Olga Corbett, Ludmilla Tereshova, Nadia Komenech. Um And great British gymnastics was a joke. It really was. But how things have turned round gold in the overall European Championships. And then, on top of that, Jake Jarman won the all-round silver medal, whilst Jessica Gadarova won the all-round gold. Now, I want to say just quickly something about Jess, because for five years she lived and trained in Coventry, so let's take a, let us take a little bit of the kudos. Now the all round individual is literally they go on all four for women and six for men pieces of apparatus, but they are only allowed one attempt, one vault, mess it up and you're out, one go on the bar fall off that four-inch platform and you're out. So well done, Jake and Jess. Now, we won a quite a few other individual medals in this single pieces of apparatus, but the, one, the two that gave me the greatest success were the gold smile, were the, were the golds won by Luke Whitehouse and... Jessica Gadarova on the floor. Now you'll remember a few minutes ago I said how British gymnastics used to be a joke. Well, I can remember the days when the Russians were doing cartwheels into double back somersaults, into flips, into twists, whatever, and the British gymnastics were standing at the corner waving their arms about a little bit, taking a few hop, skip and jumps, doing a cartwheel, perhaps a backflip and one somersault and landing on the floor with the hands down. I kid you not. Anyway, well done to British gymnastics. Unlike, I have to say, British women's tennis. As you may remember, I said that the Billie Jean King qualifier was coming to Coventry to the CBS arena. No, not the football side, the indoor side. Um, and we were playing France. Well, we played France 
And by the time we got to the fourth match, we were already 3-0 down, so they were dead rubbers. We lost 3-0. It was interesting that while Merz Raducanu was saying how she was too busy with other commitments, France could field Carolyn Garcia, who is ranked fifth in the world. Mm. Anyway, unfortunately, it now means that while France go on to contest the finals with the top 12 countries, we have to fight for our life to even be in the top league next year. Anyway, now I'm going to finish with a rather tear-jerking and finally, well, I found it quite tear-jerking, at Stratford Town's annual awards, the Player of the Year was awarded to Cody Fisher. Sorry, I'm welling up here. Cody, you might remember, was the young man stabbed to death at the nightclub in Birmingham. What a way to be remembered. Anyway, that's been your sport this week. Bye for now. With thanks to Sarah for the sports report, we now go over to Dave with your postbag. This is postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there. We start your postbag this week with an important bit of information from Graham about government plans to switch your smartphone off. Here he is to tell you more. On the 23rd of April, there is to be a government alert warning. It's an experiment which uh, they will introduce when there's any, any emergency in the future. It's a trial. But um, the way it's going to operate, it, it's going to block our phones. We're not going to be able to do, our mobile phones that is, we're not going to be able to do anything with them until we acknowledge that um, we've received it. Now then, I don't know anything about Apple TalkBack, but I've got a Samsung phone with the Synaptic program on it. And I contacted Synaptic to see what effect it would have, because if it's going to block the phone, is it going to block Synaptic? Is it going to block Apple TalkBack, for example? Synaptic couldn't answer the question. Their attitude was, well, let's just wait and see. Now then, my point is... um, if Synaptic is blocked, how am I going to find the trigger point to acknowledge that I've received the alert warning? And my suggestion to people is, unless you've got a sighted person in the house to help you, in case you need them, leave your phone switched off to be on the safe side. Uh, it only affects 4 and 5G phones, and it won't affect you if you've got it running off the Wi-Fi. Nevertheless, to be on the safe side, leave your mobile phone switched off. There are too many unanswered questions at the moment, I feel. Thank you very much, Graham, for your advice. I was told today at a bereavement group I've joined that is to do with uh, civil defence plans, but there's no more information than that. Lots of questions, like why are they doing it? But if you have any problems sorting out your phone afterwards, Resource Centre can be very helpful. 
The 23rd of April is also St. George's Day, Shakespeare's birthday and Edwina's birthday. She has this report for you on colours. Colour you happy. I'm talking about the colour that we get when it's spring. In the garden, it is beautiful. All the different seasonal flowers gradually follow each other and there is a mass of colour, the spring totally awakes. We have had very dark days and it's been a bit dreary for some of us. So I thought, why not use colour to brighten your spirits, to dazzle your your feelings to make you awake yourself a new you from spring going into summer so how about bringing colour into your home make some changes it does lift your spirit and this is something that I have been doing I've just ordered a beautiful armchair and I'm having it covered in lavender colour velvet. I love velvet. I'm making changes gradually. So another thing that is changing in colour is my bedroom. And about two weeks ago, I had gone into Leamington and with my carer, we had spied this beautiful bed cover. One side is dusky pink and the other side is forest green with dusty pink embroidered flowers on it. So, we're talking about pinks now, and green. Green is a colour of the moment. There's so many different greens. So, if one of my carers buys a dress and says it's green, I'll say, well, what colour green? Is it emerald? Grass green? Eucalyptus green, sage green, you could go on and on with green. You're safe with green. One of the main colours that hits everybody's eye at the moment is forest green. And some of the furniture is being covered in forest green velvet. I love velvet. I love things materials I can feel like velvet and satin it's, it's all part of my world I did see it one time so when these colours are described to me I ask what colour precisely so that I get a picture in my mind this is something that you can do if you have had sight, you're lucky because you can still see 
the picture in your mind when you ask someone to describe it. So why not have some extra colour, a change of colour in your home? It really will lift your spirit and give you a spring in your step. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina, very much. We were very sad to learn that Katie Dickey has died. And still on the subject of colours, she once brought along to the Monday Club a helpful device to detect colours so you could uh, colour coordinate clothes, etc. Here's the, the lovely voice of Katie again. I invested in a um, colour detector from Cobalt with £64 and I, I really like it. It tells me what colours my skirts are and yeah, all sorts of colours, everything, paper, you know, anything. Very light yellow green. Very dark purple. Dark purple. Light blue. Katie also brought along to the Monday Club one of the tactile polystyrene representations of a painting like Constable the Haywain from the Living Paintings Trust, along with cassette tapes that describe the artwork that you are running your fingers over. Katie once invited me round to her home where she interviewed me for Outlook. I played a recording of me interviewing George Carey, former Archbishop of Canterbury, and she mentioned that she had breakfast with him, along with members of a Coventry organisation that promotes international friendship. Katie, who was born in Germany, told me that she had stood in Coventry Cathedral ruins with a Jewish person, a German and a Jew, in front of the inscription that said, Father, forgive. It was a very moving moment. Katie took an active part in the organisations that she belonged to, as Graham explained about one of them. I was uh, sorry to hear of the death of Katie Dickey, um, who was a long-time recipient of the Coventry Reader Service and turned up to our annual general meetings most years, every year as far as I remember. Uh, my condolences. And Graham and myself send our condolences to Joe and the family. I was feeling lost without Sheila recently, so I found it comforting to read this letter from Julia and a poem that was read out by our niece Gemma. Julia writes, I didn't write this, it was read out at a funeral and I thought it would be nice to send it to David to read out to all those who weren't there because the words are beautiful and they remind me of Sheila. So I wrote to David, I asked him, and he said yes. It's called A Fallen Limb. A limb has fallen from the family tree. I keep hearing a voice that says, Grieve not for me. Remember the best times, the laughter, the song, the good life I lived while I was strong. Continue my heritage, I'm counting on you. Keep smiling, and surely the sun will shine through. My mind's at ease, my soul is at rest, remembering all how I was truly blessed. Continue traditions, no matter how small. Go on with your life, don't worry about falls. I miss you all dearly, so keep up your chin until the day comes when we're together again.
as author unknown. And uh, Julia said, Happy Easter to everybody in Postbagland and Ramadan, Mubarak, to all my Islamic friends. And by the way, why do we celebrate Easter with chocolate eggs? And why are they brought to us by a rabbit? I think we should be told, Julia. Well, thank you so much, Julia. Uh, This is the answer for you. Since ancient times, rabbits and eggs have been symbols of fertility, with spring the symbol of rebirth. Eostra was the goddess of fertility, whose symbol was the rabbit, because they are very fertile, and eggs the symbol of new life. They were adopted by the Christian church. The resurrection of Jesus would be tied in to the long-standing concept of rebirth. So, the Easter bunny and Easter eggs originated as pagan symbols of spring and rebirth. Over the centuries, these ancient symbols became associated with the Christian holiday of Easter, such as the two traditions have merged together to become what some celebrate today. In 17th century Germany, the Easter hare is described for the first time. According to folklore, the Easter hare would lay colourful eggs in the nests or baskets of well-behaved children. German immigrants brought this tradition of the Easter bunny to the United States in the 18th century. Over the years, the tradition evolved to include chocolates and toys in addition to Easter eggs. And incidentally, the hollow Easter egg represents the empty tomb of Jesus. So, I hope you had a nice Easter. Thank you for your lovely comments from the Monday Club about how supportive Graham has been to me. Well, both Paul and Graham have. And when you hear this, I'll be in Southport with Graham. And then joining Paul and celebrity friends in the Wirral near Liverpool for Graham's 50th party on the 22nd of April, so uh, (laughs) wish him well. And uh, I will try with your help to make sure you have a postbag for you to listen to before I go. Thank you, messages this week, and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Dave there with your Postbag. One of the oldest buildings in Coventry is Whitefriars, the surviving fragments of the Carmelite friary in Much Park Street, dating back to 1342. Margaret tells us more. The Carmelites or Whitefriars were set up in Coventry in 1342 by Sir John Poultney, merchant and mayor of London. They were a reaction to the wealthy worldliness of the Benedictines. Whitefriars Friary stood in ten acres and was intended to be an aid to the poor, along with a centre of theology and music. The white-robed friars lived an austere lifestyle and were well patronised. Their austerity wasn't carried into their 303 feet long central towered church, which has been likened to a small cathedral and was one of the largest friary churches in England. 
Inside it was painted white, gold, red and blue and had much gilding. The windows were London glass and the floor was covered with an estimated 150,000 encaustic tiles. Some of its choir stalls survive in the grammar school. The friars attended services every three hours, day and night. When not at services, they were either preaching, teaching or studying. One of note was William of Coventry, a 14th century theologian and historical writer, who used the friar's extensive library and was buried in its chapter house. Edward III gave land to extend the church, and in 1384, Lord Bassett of Drayton gave £300. In 1506, Thomas Bond of Coventry gave 20 marks to rebuild the cloisters. The friary maintained the city wall around their house, which housed the Tower of Our Lady, a nationally known place of pilgrimage. This huge complex holding 14 friars was surrendered to the crown on the 1st of October 1538 and was sold to a member of the royal household, George Pollard, and local speculator Andrew Flammock. They sold some of it in 1543 to Coventry Corporation, who knocked most of it down, including the church in 1572. The rest of Whitefriars and its buildings were granted by Henry VIII to Sir Ralph Sadler. He sold it in 1544 to John Hales for £83.12. Hales demolished some and turned the rest, mostly the cloistered section, into a private residence called Hales Place. He entertained Elizabeth I here over three nights. Mary Queen of Scots and James I both stayed here. In his will, Hales ordered the building to be sold, but it remained in the family. Early in the 18th century, when Christopher Hales died, his brother, Sir Edward, sold it to pay Christopher's debts. The Duke of Montague then became the owner and in 1722 conveyed it to Mr Samuel Hill of Shenstone Park and it then passed to Mr Smith of Apsley, a clergyman. Smith sold it in 1801 to the directors of poor of the United Parishes of Coventry and the building was converted into a workhouse. The finely groined and arched cloisters became the dining hall of the inmates. Whitefriars was restored in the 1960s and became a museum for a short period. Over recent years, it's been a storeroom for the Herbert. Considering this is one of the most significant remains of a Carmelite building in Great Britain, one can only hope for a better future for this important historic building, and it's now a negotiation, according to this book, to be taken over by the Historic Coventry Trust. We all have our personal favourite of tea or coffee, which both seem to be competing in the nation's fav- as the nation's favourite drink. You'll remember a few weeks ago Nigel talked about tea and its origins. Now this week, Sheila takes that a bit further with the benefits that tea offers. 
Everything stops for tea, sang Jack Buchanan in a cut-glass English accent, impressive for a man born and bred in Scotland. A lot of water has passed under the bridge and refilled UK kettles since his 1935 musical toast to tea. But almost a century on, a cheering cup has remained more popular than ever. We Brits daily drink in 100 million cuppers. It's a very good English custom, though the weather be cold or hot, when they need a little pick-up, you'll find a little teapot will always hit the spot, the debonair crooner suggested. A new report confirms that nearly six in ten of us find such a hug in a mug relaxing. A fifth claiming our refreshing Rosie Lee, our superpower go-to stress buster. Tea advisory panel members, GP Jill Jenkins, dietitian Dr. Carrie Ruxton and Dr. Tim Bond, distilled science into share simple lifestyle top tips to get our fitness back on track, saying, as our lives become increasingly complex and fast-paced, it's essential to keep focus on our personal well-being. Dr. Jenkins explained, tea works on the heart and vessels thanks to its rich content of polyphenols and beneficial plant compounds that help to lower blood pressure and fight oxidation, a process that damages our cells if we don't eat enough antioxidant-rich foods. What's good for the heart is also good for the brain. A study showed drinking tea, especially black tea, can have a positive effect on cognitive function, attention, mind-wandering and focus, mental well-being, stress and mood, and brain blood flow. Even just one or two cups a day provided some benefits. Studies examining associations between tea and heart health suggest the sweet spot for tea drinking is four or five cups a day. Dr. Bond confirmed, Encouragingly, the research poll we reviewed shows that 21% of the nation are hitting their target during their working day, but that leaves room for improvement. And he advised, Ideally, we should leave the tea bag to brew for at least three minutes to release the optimum number of polyphenols. Dr. Carey continued, Tea is like nature's pharmacy, with polyphenols for heart and brain health, fluoride for strong teeth, caffeine for alertness and L-theorine, a unique immune acid found in tea for distressing and focus. So hydrate with five a day. Dr. Bond advised his scientists to settle on about three or four cups a day as the optimal intake, not only to keep us hydrated but to provide us with the right amount of these compounds. And take five minutes to recharge. Brewing a cup is a great way of stop doing or thinking and just be yourself for a full five minutes. It's great news for our brain and mind health, as well as providing that TLC time for our bodies from top to toe. So, perhaps it's time to put the kettle on. There's an, an enormous choice in both teas and coffees available, of course, with Earl Grey and Darjeeling among many teas, and Colombian and Arabic among numerous other coffees, besides the everyday Typhoon and Nescafe. So tell us about your favourite in Postbag. I'm sure that everybody heard last week about the death of Mary Quant, who was a fashion designer and icon of the 1960s, starting a whole new fashion trend. Here's Sue to remind us about her extraordinary life. The 60s mini was the most self-indulgent, optimistic, look-at-me-isn't-life-wonderful fashion ever devised. It expressed the 60s, the emancipation of women, the pill and rock and roll. 
it was the beginning of women's lib. So quoth Mary Quant in 2012. And she should know, since she invented the mini, or rather is widely credited of having done so, although the truth is more complex. The most era-defining look of the 1960s arrived gradually, with above-the-knee skirts creeping in slowly from the late 50s and creeping up thighs to reach their shortest around 1966. But even if Cristobal Balenciaga, Yves Saint Laurent and André Courage must take credit for showing short skirts on the catwalks of Paris, it was on the streets of London where the trend really got legs, literally. At the vanguard of this burgeoning cultural shift towards informality stood Quant, a woman way ahead of her time and a designer who, like Frank Sinatra, did things her way. That was, of course, far harder to effect if you were female than it is now, and makes her single-minded vision all the more remarkable. Quant once famously declared she didn't have time to wait for women's lib, and chose instead to stage her own form of liberation by freeing young women from being forced to dress like their mothers. In 1955, Quant and her aristocratic boyfriend, Alexander Plunkett Green, both 21 and fresh out of art school, opened a boutique, Bazaar, on London's King's Road in Chelsea, back in the days when high street rents were low enough for 21-year-old art students to be able to do such things. Soon, the small boutique had become the heart of swinging Chelsea. In contrast to the cinch-waisted, long-skirted and tightly structured new look pioneered by Dior, the pervading aesthetic throughout the 1950s, Quant's designs were young, bright and full of fun, a look she described in her 1966 biography, Quant on Quant, as a bouillabaisse of clothes and accessories. It's hard to overstate the impact Quant's sleeveless shift dresses, shiny PVC raincoats, skinny rib jumpers and brightly coloured tights had on a generation of young women who, for the first time in history, were being presented with an alternative to dressing like mum. Here was a wardrobe that echoed their own liberation clothes to dance in, with skirts short enough to allow them to move freely. I was making clothes which we would let you run and dance, and we would make them the length the customer wanted, she said in 2014. I wore them very short, but customers would still say, shorter, shorter. Quant named the miniskirt after her favourite make of car, another British design classic that had launched in 1959, and whose tiny proportions echoed that of her beloved skirts. Long before Stella McCartney or Victoria Beckham became walking advertisements for their own brands came Quant, a charismatic gamine whose angular bob made its creator, the hairdresser Vidal Sassoon, equally famous. In her white knee boots, colour block shift and shiny brown bob, 
Quant was her own best brand ambassador. Ever generous, Quant liked to say that it was the girls on the King's Road who invented the miniskirt. Models such as Twiggy and Jean Shrimpton, and singers like Scylla Black and Sandy Shaw. But Quant and her boutique were at its white-hot epicentre. At the beginning, profits were non-existent. But more women with jobs meant more women with disposable income, and it was Quant they chose to spend it on. Such was her popularity that within ten years she had become a global brand. After opening her second London boutique in 1957, in 1962 she entered the American market via a deal with J.C. Penney. A post on the Twitter account of Victoria and Albert Museum, which in 2019 hosted an exhibition of Quant's designs, summed it up best. It's impossible to overstate Quant's contribution to fashion. She represented the joyful freedom of 1960s fashion and provided a new role model for young women. Fashion today owes so much to her trailblazing vision. Born in Blackheath, South East London, Barbara Mary Quant died peacefully at her home in Surrey, aged 93. Dame Mary Quant was indeed an enormous influence and left a great legacy. And now, as a complete contrast, here is Ali again with another short story by Cynthia Townsend, this one called Playing for Laughs. Heather had been playing the trumpet for six years. She did originally pick the violin as her instrument of choice at junior school, but didn't really like a violin teacher. So when she went to high school, there was the option to stick with the violin or choose a new instrument, and the only ones available were the tuba or the trumpet. So thinking of the practicalities of getting around with a tuba, she chose the trumpet. Not that her parents were very pleased, at least with the violin, however badly played, it could be masked by something else being played on the radiogram downstairs. But when Heather practised her trumpet, there was nowhere to hide. She took to the trumpet like a duck to water and really enjoyed the fact that she was the only girl playing this particular brass instrument, as up till now the brass section of the school orchestra had been totally male-dominated. Heather put a lot of time into her practice, and often would stay behind after school to play in smaller groups to get more experience. She also signed up for a number of wind bands and brass bands that were local to the area. I wouldn't say that Heather was a show-off, but when the opportunity arose for someone to do a solo in the middle of a piece, what she lacked in skill she made up for in enthusiasm and was the first to volunteer. She loved the whole brass player mentality. Where the string section, and there were plenty of them, were a safe pair of hands and the instruments you could rely on, the brass section were mavericks, never taking anything seriously and forever counting, because unlike the violins, they were only used in certain sections of the music, especially when the score said fortissimo, and no one could do fortissimo like the brass section. Heather would audition every year to play in the school band, which accompanied the annual school musical, 
and by this time she was also learning to play the double bass. Thankfully, that instrument belonged to the school. Her parents nearly fainted at the prospect of trying to save up to buy her own. The trumpet and double bass was not your usual combination. Most people who played an instrument would have a piano as their first and a violin or wind instrument as their second. Heather liked the look of the double bass. She remembered seeing the spinners on TV when she was small, and the double bass players seemed to have a lot of fun. So again, when the opportunity arose to learn to play it, Heather thought, why not? Being the only double bass player in the school also had its advantages. Heather was a soloist and had great fun pinging away at the strings and spinning the double bass around, just like the man from the spinners used to do. And as much fun as it was, it really wasn't appropriate during the school assembly. When the school announced it was doing The Boyfriend, Heather was excited. She'd seen the school do this several years ago, as her big sister Jane was in it. It was a lovely musical, and the tunes were memorable, and the story was fun, so it was definitely something she wanted to be part of. However, there was a bit of a problem. The school band needed two trumpets and a double bass. As Heather was one of the trumpets and the double bass, it was a bit of a dilemma. As ever, she'd come up with a solution, which she put to Mr Statham, the music teacher. Why couldn't she do both? There were some tunes that needed two trumpets, and some that didn't. So in the ones that didn't, she played a double bass. There you go, sorted. Mr Statham seemed to think this was a workable solution, and throughout the rehearsals, it worked really well. After a few months of intensive rehearsing, it was time for the musical to be performed in front of a live audience. There's nothing like the nerves of an opening night. You look forward to something for ages, and then when it's here, your stomach does flips and you're a wreck. But as soon as the overture starts, it all calms down, and you're transported to the south of France in the 1920s for the next two hours. All was going well. The audience seemed to be enjoying the show. The band was sounding great, the costumes and the set were exceptional, and the cast was super. One of the problems, however, of being in the band was that they were heard, but not seen. For some reason, it was thought a good idea to put them in the corner by the left of the stage, surrounded by shrubbery. Heather was the only one who could be seen, as whenever she played the double bass, it meant she was standing up and her head and shoulders and the top half of the double bass could be spotted by audience members, which pleased her parents no end. The band were told to dress in black as well, so no bright colours. Black could blend in nicely. Not that you could outdo the colours of the French Riviera if you tried. Heather was wearing an elegant, long black dress, which looked lovely. She felt so grown up, as any sixteen-year-old would, dressed up to the nines. The time came for her to put down the trumpet and get up to play the double bass in the song I Could Be Happy With You, a nice little number sung by Polly and Tony, the two lead characters. All was going well. The song was sung and played beautifully, and so Heather put the double bass down on its side and climbed over it to get back to her seat 
to pick up the trumpet for the next song. But then, disaster struck. She got the bottom of her dress caught in the tailpin of the double bass and couldn't free it. Mr. Statham was the only one who could help, but he was playing the scene change music on the piano. Heather tapped him on the shoulder and mouthed the words, Help me! He briefly looked to the side and saw what had happened. So he carried on playing with his right hand and was using his left hand trying to unhook the court material from the end of the double bass, which he managed to do with a few seconds to spare before the next song started, which included Heather's trumpet solo. It was a close call and no one in the audience were any the wiser about the other drama that was going on at the side of the stage. It was also a clear endorsement of why having so much shrubbery in front of the band was indeed a very wise decision. They couldn't say much about the incident during the musical, but as soon as the production finished and the last curtain call was taken, the band burst out in fits of laughter, and Heather was the talk of the school the next day. She was ribbed endlessly by her fellow band members whenever their paths crossed in lessons. And Heather decided that from then on, a small black trouser suit was probably the safest garment to wear for the rest of the run. For our short story, we move to a real-life story. With spring now firmly with us, we start looking forward to summer and the possibility of summer holidays. But we also look back to the happy memories of holidays past, often in far-flung places. One such person is Kate Meakin, who here recounts her holiday in Hong Kong in a chat with Sarah. Right, today I'm pleased to be with Katie Meakin. It's Sarah, but not presenting any more sport now. In fact, we're going to talk about going places. Because I understand, Katie, you've been somewhere rather nice for quite a long time. Yes, I have, Sarah. Um, I, I went to Hong Kong. Ooh, and how long were you there for? Oh, it was quite a while. I... I I went last November and I did not come back until the 12th of January, so it was around about coming up nearly 10 weeks, so it was a very long time. Wow. And sort of why did you go that now, for that long? Now, the reason why I went for that long is because I've actually got family who live and work there. Ah. Because it's basically uh, my sister, her husband and... Now, we've got a new addition to the family. I now have a nephew called Rory, and I'm now an auntie. Oh, lovely. And he was born in June in the UK, but they went back a little bit later on. But they're now in Hong Kong. That's where they live and work. Ah. And did you actually stay with them? No, no, no. We were in separate accommodation. But basically, we were treated by them to go and stay in Hong Kong. We were offered free accommodation. So we were treated, basically... So you say actually in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, but it was, yeah, it wasn't far from where they lived, but it was like in um, a building where there were flats, but we were, we offered, we, 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 all we got was free accommodation and they treated us. It was lovely. Very nice. So how long was the flight? It was like about 
12 to 13 hours, it was 14 hours going back. Oh, it was very long. But the good thing about the flights was because we flew there and back to the UK at night, we could sleep on the plane. Mm-hmm. So that was a good thing about it. But it was lovely. And did you fly direct? Uh, yes, uh, we flew direct from London to Hong Kong. But then we flew back to Manchester when we came back in January. Right, so I hope you end parked your car in London. No, 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 no. What if we uh, we got dropped off to London by UK family, so that was mm-hmm. nice. So what did you think of Hong Kong? Hong Kong was lovely, but I tell you what was good was the the transport is very very cheap. You could go anywhere from one side of the island to another for I can't remember all the prices, but it was pretty cheap. Um, and, but also, it is, to, to actually live there is very, very expensive. We wouldn't actually live there because it is so expensive. Even to live and work is very expensive. So just living there is not cheap. But we loved, I loved all the food because I tried different cuisines from, from, from Korean to Vietnamese food. And also, what also was good was it's actually very visually impaired friendly. Let me explain this to our listeners. Well, when you cross a road, they have like these crossings and they go ding ding just sorry making all the sounds here but um, and then they make noises so when you cross you know when to cross the road so it's very very visually impaired friendly for that purpose but also the people were really really nice even even when I went on a bus with either my mum or my sister I got help from people so I could sit down so people can save this got up so I could sit down so that was that was really really nice mm-hmm. so and did you get any sense of the sort of Chinese versus yes, position? Yes, I did, because the main part of their language they speak there is like can, Cantonese, Mandarin, that type of thing. But I just couldn't understand the language, but I could hear that there was different cultures, which I really loved. There was Americans, there was all sorts of cultures there. But also, one of the things I did enjoy as well about Hong Kong was I used to go to a little massage place and they used to do like back, neck, shoulder massage, all those nice massages. And the girls that did treat me were the people of me and my mum went and the girls that treated me were really, really nice. And they were just, every, all the people there were just so friendly. It was just a tiny little shop, quite cheaply. And that was really, really nice. When I needed it, I managed to go and just booked a point. Just, sometimes you could just walk in and have that. So that was really good. So there's lots of good things about Hong Kong. It was also, also we went to, my sister and her husband took us to various different islands. We went to a place called Lama. We like going on boat trips was a highlight for us. Right. And going to different islands. So one of them was called Lama and they had all the seafood. That was fab fabulous, really nice. But overall it was a fantastic experience. I'd recommend listeners, it's a holiday of a lifetime, but the flights just bear it in mind they are long, but it is worth going if you want something. Mm interesting or different cultures and while you were there did you do any shopping uh, <laughs> that's a good question well well yes well well my sister treated me to a lot of nice clothes and things so yes they yeah we bought yes i bought nice jewelry and stuff i liked we went to one place we went to there was a market and we went there and that was really really nice um there was like where I could go shops and 
I mean, the food and the shops, yeah, it was, it was nice, but it was just very, very expensive, but it was worth it. That's trip. what I was coming up to ask about, whether it was expensive. Very, very expensive. I mean, I won't want to say prices or anything like that, but it was just very, very, even to live there is expensive, but people were, were people live and work there. You see, my sister and my husband have lived there for a number of years, and it is expensive, but... What I tell you what was lovely was that I got to spend my first Christmas with my sister, her husband, and my gorgeous little nephew. He's growing up really fast now, so it's just lovely to still was lovely to see. Oh, how lovely! And my sister's called Sophie, her husband's called Patrick, and the nephew, my nephew's called Rory. Right. And I actually went. Um, it was just a trip that me and my mum took. It was just lovely because, because the reason we also went was because my sister was on maternity leave and she wanted us to go out to visit them. So it was lovely. And just one final question because yes. I'm British. Okay. What was the weather like? <laughs> well, let me tell you. Oh, good, good question. So let me tell you. We got there hot. <laughs> so. When we got there, it was 30 degrees, but when we got back, it was about 20. So it was a different, it was, when I first got there, just had to climatise to the heat. Yes. Because the humidity there is awful. I, I remember when I was in Japan, it was the humidity. Mm. Yes. And you were constantly sort of washing and showering mm. and... Mm, yeah. Right, well, thank you very well, much. You're there, welcome. Katie. You're very welcome. And I'm yeah. sure if you've got any questions about Hong Kong, you can send them into Postbag and I'll make sure, or Kate, well, Katie gets the talking newspaper, so we'll make sure we get them answered. Well, um, well I do actually get it on the podcast, so that's fine. Right, well, thank you very much. And now, to bring this week's outlook to an end. Here is a short poem by Rudyard Kipling called The Way Through the Woods, read by Margaret. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again, and now you would never know there was once a road through the woods before they planted the trees. It is underneath the coppice and heath and the thin anemones. Only the keeper sees that where the ring-dove broods and the badgers roll at ease, there was once a road through the woods. Yet if you enter the woods of a summer evening late, when the night air cools on the trout-ringed pools, where the otter whistles his mate, they fear not men in the woods, because they see so few. You will hear the beat of a horse's feet and the swish of a skirt in the dew. Steadily cantering through the misty solitudes, as though they perfectly knew the old lost road through the woods. But there is no road through the woods. With that short poem by Rudyard Kipling, it's goodbye from the Outlook team, in particular from me, Pete Walters. So until next week, bye-bye.